Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, today on our weekly roundtable. A lot has come out since the January 6th invasion of the U.S. Capitol, including the threat of more violence. And Joe Biden has released his economic stimulus plan. Also, damage that Donald Trump is doing on his way out. And we remember the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, his relevance, his legacy in these times. Our panelists are Jackie Goldberg, Laura Carlson, Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Before we go to our news headlines, let us hear some of the final words from the final speech that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King gave before he was assassinated. We've got some difficult days ahead. Some began to talk about the threats that were out. Uh, What would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? Well, I don't know what will happen now. But it really doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, that just gives you chills. That was the last speech he gave before he was assassinated. Now let's go to our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Federal prosecutors believe the pro-Trump mob that stormed the Capitol last week planned to capture and assassinate elected officials. That's according to new court documents filed by prosecutors late yesterday. They were seeking the detention of Jacob Chansley of Arizona. He's the QAnon conspiracy theorist, photographed wearing horns, standing at the desk of Vice President Mike Pence in the chamber of the U.S. Senate. 
Earlier in the day, FBI Director Christopher Wray said the agency is tracking an extensive amount of concerning online chatter, including calls for armed protests leading up to next week's presidential inauguration. Ray said during the inauguration, the FBI will operate around the clock command post at headquarters and at each of its 56 field offices. Max Pringle reports. FBI Director Christopher Wray said some of the online chatter analysts are seeing could just be people talking about what they'd like to see happen as opposed to an actual plan. Uh, We're concerned about the potential for violence at multiple protests and rallies planned here in D.C. and at state capitol buildings around the country in the days to come that could bring armed individuals within close proximity to government buildings and officials. Some members of Congress said that extremists are among their colleagues. In an online statement, New York Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said she couldn't trust some pro-Trump conspiracy theory-pushing members that she'd been evacuated to a safe room with. There were QAnon and white supremacist sympathizers and, frankly, white supremacist members of Congress um, in that extraction point who I know and who I have felt would disclose my location and allow me to... um, who would create opportunities to allow me to be hurt, kidnapped. For KPFA News, I'm Max Pringle. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has named the nine lawmakers who will serve as prosecutors in Donald Trump's impeachment trial in the Senate on the charge of inciting insurrection. All of them are lawyers, many of them with deep experience investigating Trump. Maryland's Jamie Raskin will serve as the lead manager. Two of the prosecutors are from California, Ted Lieu and Eric Swalwell. Also, Diane DeGette of Colorado, David Cicilline of Rhode Island, Joaquin Castro of Texas, Joe Neguse of Colorado, Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania, and Stacey Plaskett of the Virgin Islands. President Trump reportedly is considering using his Personal attorney Rudy Giuliani to mount his Senate defense. Reuters reported Trump may also hire California law professor John Eastman, who spoke at his rally before the mob attack on the Capitol. President-elect Joe Biden has unveiled a $1.9 trillion coronavirus plan. It includes $1,400 checks for individuals on top of the $600 provided in the last COVID-19 bill. Christopher Martinez reports. Joe Biden is rolling out plans for a massive COVID-19 relief proposal to address what he calls the twin crises of a pandemic and a sinking economy. He'll be asking Congress for $1.9 trillion, perhaps in two separate bills. It's a big ask. You know, I know what I just described has not come cheaply, but failure to do so will cost us dearly. The consensus among leading economists is we simply can't not afford not to do what I'm proposing. The plan includes money to speed up the stuttering vaccination rollout, as well as to prepare for the safe reopening of kindergarten through eighth grade schools. Other money would go to boost the $600 relief checks people will be getting, bringing the payments to a total of $2,000. Biden will also ask Congress for rental assistance to help 14 million families and more money to increase and extend unemployment benefits. Other funds would go to states and cities and to struggling small businesses. I'm Christopher Martinez. President-elect Biden is tapping former Food and Drug Administration Commissioner David Kessler to help lead the incoming administration's vaccine rollout and development program. Kessler has been advising Biden as co-chair of the advisory board on the coronavirus pandemic. He served at the FDA in the 1990s under Presidents George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. 
The pick of Kessler comes after Biden yesterday called the Trump administration rollout of coronavirus vaccine a dismal failure and says he will unveil his own plans today to speed up inoculations. The U.S. has suffered more than 388,000 confirmed deaths from COVID-19. Scientists say 2020 was either the hottest year on record or a close second or third. Either way, they say the hottest six years on record have been the last six, and the Earth is clearly heating up because of the burning of coal, oil, and natural gas with disastrous consequences. Climate campaigner Greta Thunberg tweeted, We're in a climate emergency, and the changes needed are still nowhere in sight. The only ones who can change that are us. Be the change, she says. I'm Eileen Alfandiri for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, since Wednesday, January 6th, when far-right Donald Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol building in a deadly insurrection. There has been growing political instability in the United States since the attempted coup. We've also learned a lot about the forces behind it, concerns about law enforcement and credible threats against legislators fearing for their lives. Prior to the insurrection, an anti-tax group funded primarily by billionaires was one of the biggest backers of the Republican lawmakers who sought to overturn the U.S. election results, according to analysis by The Guardian. The Club for Growth, as the group is known, supported the campaigns of 42 of the right-wing Republican senators and members of Congress who voted last week to challenge the U.S. election results, giving out an estimated $20 million to directly and indirectly support their campaigns. On the day of the invasion of the Capitol, dozens of people on an FBI terrorist watch list were in Washington, D.C., this according to the Washington Post. The majority of the watch-listed individuals in Washington that day are suspected white supremacists who had been previously entered into the National Terrorist Screening Database. So what happened? Anyway, also, an Associated Press investigation has revealed that at least 21 current or former members of the U.S. military or law law enforcement have been identified as being at or near the Capitol building takeover, with more than a dozen others under investigation but not yet named. In several cases, those who stormed the Capitol appeared to deploy tactics employ tactics, body armor, and technology, such as two-way radio headsets that were similar to those of the very police they were confronting. And although the events of January 6th are now in the past, credible threats of violence still haunt legislators in office who are opposed to Trump or who support his removal. Reports have surfaced that both Democrats and Republicans who have openly opposed Trump and the violent insurrection have received death threats, forcing them to take on tight security measures. Meanwhile, President-elect Joe Biden is just days away from taking office, but many are concerned that there won't be a peaceful inauguration. In the lead-up to the inauguration, the U.S. government is also preparing the possibility of more violent riots at state capitals across the country. Others believe that insurrectionists 
will in fact not turn up in Washington DC or state capitals on inauguration day, but instead they are preparing uh, surprise attacks and a more prolonged offensive uh, after uh, Biden-Harris come into office. Now, the Biden-Harris team left to pick up the remaining pieces from this um, disaster and attempt to fix major systemic problems currently plaguing the country plaguing the country. These include the COVID-19 pandemic, the failing economy, systemic racism, environmental devastation, among others. On Thursday, January 14th, during an evening address from Delaware, Joe Biden announced his COVID-19 vaccination as well as his economic rescue legislative package. The massive $1.9 trillion proposal focuses on stimulus and ongoing uh, pandemic. Let us go now uh, to a clip that um, uh, where you'll hear Joe Biden lay out some of his plans. Direct cash payments, extended unemployment insurance, rent relief, food assistance, keeping essential frontline workers on the job, aid to small businesses. These are the key elements to the American Rescue Plan that would lift 12 million Americans out of poverty and cut child poverty in half. That's five million children lifted out of poverty if we move. Our plan will reduce poverty in the black community by one third, reduce poverty in the Hispanic community by almost 40% and includes much more. Imagine confronting the climate crisis with American jobs and ingenuity leading the world. It's time to stop talking about infrastructure and to finally start building an infrastructure so we can be more competitive. Millions of good-paying jobs that put Americans to work rebuilding our roads, our bridges, our ports, to make them more climate resilient, to make them faster, cheaper, cleaner, to transport American-made goods across our country and around the world. That's how we compete. And imagine millions of jobs in a caregiving economy to ease the financial burden of caring for young children and aged loved ones, let's make sure our caregivers, mostly women, women of color, immigrants, have the same pay and dignity that they deserve so we can do these bold, practical things now, now. You know, I know what I just described does not come cheaply, but failure to do so will cost us dearly. The consensus among leading economists is we simply can't not afford not to do what I'm proposing. All righty. So uh, Joe Biden's plan will allocate more than one trillion dollars of the total one point nine trillion for direct stimulus, while four hundred billion would go toward covid related projects, including the nationwide vaccination program and four hundred and forty billion dollars towards relief for communities and businesses. Biden's plan includes direct payments of up to one thousand four hundred dollars to families in need that when combined with the recent six hundred dollar stimulus payment would deliver on Biden's pledge to pass two thousand dollars of direct payments uh, to people across the country who are eligible.
weekly filings for jobless benefits have hit the highest level since July as the pandemic resurgence batters the service economy. On the COVID-19 front, Biden plans to provide immediate support for vaccines in combating the spread of the deadly virus. There have been over 300 84,000 deaths and more than 23 million cases in the United States. This according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center. As of Wednesday, of the more than 29 billion million vaccine doses distributed nationwide, just over 10 million people have received their first dose. This according to the Centers of Disease Control. Now, I'd like to welcome our panelists. I'd like to welcome uh, Laura Carlson, director of the Americas program. She works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. Based in Mexico City, she's a regular contributor to America's Update or Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for a number of international news outlets. Laura Carlson, welcome. Thank you, Margaret. Happy to be here. Jackie Goldberg, governing board member for the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She's a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council. Before being elected to council, she served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, what a terrible times we're in. I'm telling you, Dr. Gerald Horn, Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He's also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Dr. Gerald and welcome. Thank you for inviting me. What we're going to do in this round is uh, really have your comments on two things, comments and analysis. One, on all of there's been so much information that's come out uh, since uh, the January 6th invasion of the U.S. Capitol. Some are referring to it as an insurrection on the one hand. And uh, on the other hand, there is the economic crisis and the pandemic in, in the U.S., and, and thus one of the reasons that I played uh, the clip of uh, Biden's proposal. So you may want to uh, comment on one or both of those, and we'll start with you, Laura Carlson. Now that we've seen more information on what happened on January 6th, I think one of the most shocking elements and something that we knew from the beginning but that's been substantiated is this vision of the enemy within. This was clearly planned and organized and now we're seeing the extent of law enforcement participation and also members of government. The information that to capture and assassinate members of Congress is horrifying but it's not unprecedented. We have the, uh, the, the scheme in Michigan with the Michigan government governor and there's reports that congressmen and perhaps women but i think congressmen actually gave reconnaissance visits to some of the right wing before the siege that they're looking into now 
one of the good things is that there seems to be a vigorous response on the part of the FBI in terms of arrests and prosecution with some 70 people already prosecuted, no-fly lists, reviews on social media. This is critical because otherwise the absolute impunity that we saw from law enforcement during the siege, if that were to be extended into the judicial arena, then there would basically be a green light for any types of action like this. As it is, it does look, as you mentioned, that the right wing is thinking twice about how and when and where to mobilize, and in fact it may be very well that there's a division there. Because according to monitoring of the uh, social media, that they typically lose despite use despite the crackdowns on message boards and other areas in which the right wing is organized. Um, it looks that men, many people are placing times and dates, particularly at state capitals and monuments, but then more mainstream right wing organizations are saying, don't go, we're in this for the long haul, and it's a trap or what they call a, fa uh, a false flag. So we'll have to see what happens there, but there's no question that the January 20th inauguration is a red flag. It's uh, uh, a time when there's the expectation that there will be violence. There's some 15 to 20,000 people, um, National Guard mobilized in Washington, D.C. now, making it look like an occupied city, which it, which it technically is right now. And, uh, and, and there's a great deal of concern about what could happen there. Meanwhile, Trump has continued to incite violence. He went to the border wall where he was um, basically dog-whistling his supporters to support the wall and to rise up against any initiative on the part of the Biden administration to stop building the wall or to take any part of the wall down. He said, we can't let the next administration even think about taking it down. And that's, that's a hidden message, not so hidden. Uh, to his troops, especially in the context of the fact that the Biden administration has already announced that it will no longer continue with Trump's wall along the southern border. The other factor, I think, in what this volatile scene is showing us is the personality, again, of Donald Trump himself. Mary Trump has said that he's psychologically incapable of processing his loss. And John Kelly said that he views it as a, a sense of manhood. So this deep patriarchal culture adds to both his volatility and violence and also is a characteristic of his followers and will make this particular situation more dangerous in the future. It's therefore a good thing that Joe Biden has come out with his new plan to mark a new path. I think that it'll take a longer discussion to look at the details of that. It doesn't seem to have the kind of gender perspective that's necessary, but uniting a response to the economic crisis and the health crisis in a bold new plan is a step in the right direction. And Jackie Goldberg, your thoughts on this? I mean, there's a, a raging debate going on about what Congress should be focusing on right now. For example, a very quick uh, impeachment, even though that's a bit up, up in the air with whether 17 senators can be found uh, 
vote for impeachment. And even after that, there'll need to be another vote to ensure that Donald Trump would not be able to run again um, for public office, certainly not for president of the United States. And then, of course, there is, and, and the other side of that debate are people saying that we have to move forward with uh, putting, approving Biden's team and also that the agenda, the economic agenda that he laid out um, just last night, um, on Thursday night, that Congress really needs to um, act on that. And interestingly, he wants to raise the maximum value of child independent care tax credit to $4,000 for one child under the age of 13. So that's $8,000 for two or more children children. That might not seem like a lot, but for uh, low-income people, people on welfare and others, that would really be quite a boost and would be the first time that there would be some kind of child benefit, a refundable uh, child benefit available for parents. Uh, Jackie Goldberg, your thoughts on, on those two fronts, the aftermath as well as what Biden is proposing? Well, I think the Senate is going to have to work <clears throat> to do both things at the same time, which uh, which under McConnell would never have happened, but certainly under uh, Schumer will. That is to say, they need to approve quickly his uh, his cabinet and his people to get started. They need to have a coronavirus plan for vaccination immediately, uh, because there are millions, literally, of doses out here that aren't being in anybody's arms. Uh, and that's, of course, because uh, Trump decided that he wasn't going to do anything about getting it into people's arms. Just getting the virus there was all he was going to worry on. Um, I think also they need to be very worried about what's going to happen internally in both the Senate and the Assembly with people looking at each other across the aisle and saying, were you involved in threatening my life? Were you involved in making it possible for the vice president of the United States to be kidnapped and hung? Were you involved in that? Were you involved in taking people around uh, so that they could be better at, at getting at us? Uh, because, you see, uh, I worked in the Assembly, which is not too different from the Congress in terms of many of these the things, and certainly some of the people are the same. Uh, and uh, I will tell you that it getting work done relies on the ability of people who don't agree with each other to get to talk to each other and to at least trust each other. I think the trust is gone, and I think that is terrible loss, but I think it is well-deserved, because it is not so clear that QAnon elected people weren't involved in this. You know, people don't realize that we have QAnon people actually elected to the Congress. We also have white supremacists in the Congress, a lot of them. And these folks are not going away. But I think there's going to be a big question now of whether or not there should be action taken against those uh, who participated. Certainly, I don't think Cruz in the Senate and Hawley in the, in the House have, should rest easily because I don't think that there – I think there are a lot of Republicans who are not real happy with the position those two put them in as well. I'm most worried about uh, violence uh, being uh, not on our screens, uh, not knowing when it's going to happen. Um, and I think that's really what they're going to do. They're going to now, uh, now that people are being arrested and they're realizing that, that, oh, maybe there are consequences, I think you're going to see more people wearing masks, taking fewer pictures of themselves. And I think it's going to be uh, not in D.C., at least not now, 
in D.C. Uh, you have more troops now uh, pretty soon in D.C., uh, National Guard, than we have in Afghanistan or, or Iraq. So it tells you how vulnerable we are. But I think in terms of what Biden thinks he's going to try to accomplish, uh, these are big items, not little, and I think that was a mistake that maybe Obama did when he had a majority in both houses, small that it was. They didn't dream big. I think he's dreaming big. I think dreaming big makes a lot of sense in this particular moment in history, and I hope that uh, we will be able to get enough votes in the Senate to get these bills uh, that will be passed by the House going. I do not worry about uh, deficits uh, in crises because we have seen in the past in, in economic crises that spending money opens the economy back up. And when the economy is back open, uh, you don't need to keep spending it. And now you have more income tax in, uh, benefits because people are working again and so forth. But I do think it's a very dangerous time, and I want to just stop with that. I received as a member of the State Assembly when I was doing my legislation on gay marriage, I received many death threats. But there are very few you take seriously, but there are some you take seriously. And these death threats need to be taken seriously because these death threats are made by people who have a history of violence. And when you have people who have a history of violence making death threats, you must take that very, very seriously. And I think that's going to be a very scary thing for elected officials. We here in Los Angeles had an incident in which we were told that QAnon was going to go to our superintendent's house, and uh, 500 of them. We had to call out uh, all kinds of people to protect him. They didn't show up, but I think that's going to be the nature of the thing. They're going to they're going to let people know they're coming, then they're not going to come, and then when you're not expecting them, they will come. This is a dangerous time. Absolutely, and Dr. Gerald Horn, picking up from um, what Jackie Goldberg is saying, one has to wonder if we are now entering an expanded phase of a kind of guerrilla warfare uh, in the United States. I mean, there have been previous attacks on government buildings, et cetera, by um, ultra-right and white supremacists. There have been uh, warnings, certainly from those of us communities of color, about the threat of white supremacist terrorism. That wasn't really taken seriously. Instead, the Trump administration focused on uh, trying to name Black Lives Matter as, as protesters, as, as terrorists, uh, beating them up, uh, et cetera, and really, in a lot of ways, giving a pass and giving room, if not leadership, uh, for these types of uh, militia-style uh, groups, the Kenosha Guard, Boogaloo Brothers, Proud Boys, Three Percenters, et cetera. So I'm wondering um, your thoughts on this, because this is also this kind of right white riots, not new in history. So your thoughts on that as well as anything you might want to say about uh, Biden and his plan moving forward, Dr. Gerald Horn. Well, I'd like to point listeners to an article in Yahoo News that just appeared that suggests that many of the ultra-rights in the United States received a transfer of Bitcoin, cryptocurrency worth about $500,000 from Western Europe before this so-called insurrection, uh, which suggests that the folks over here are aligning with their comrades overseas 
which will turbocharge the efforts of both. I would also like to point listeners to comments by a member of the squad, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley of Boston, who suggested that before January 6th, the panic buttons in her offices and the House were ripped out. Uh, she had those panic buttons installed because of death threats, but somehow they were ripped out just before January 6th. Uh, Congressman James Clyburn of the Black Caucus in Washington says that he found it curious that the invaders were able to find his hideaway in the building and yet ignored his office where the where there's a plaque with his name on it on the door. Uh, Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill of New Jersey uh, has been amongst those who have suggested that members of the House, the Republican side, were engaged in reconnaissance with the invaders on January 5th because this is a very complex set of structures with underground tunnels and all the rest. Pay attention to the article in the Washington Post uh, t talking about Ali Alexander, formerly Ali Akbar, uh, a black American, for what it's worth, who says that he worked with Congressman Mo Brooks of Alabama, Congressman Paul Bosar of Arizona, and Congressman Andy Biggs of Arizona to plan this entire exercise. Obviously, the Capitol Police need to be investigated. And here, pay attention to the fact that since 2001, uh, black members of the Capitol Police have filed uh, scores of lawsuits uh, charging all manner of racism and discrimination. And one who has filed the lawsuit found it curious that when the invaders entered the Capitol, they tended to trash uh, only Democratic Party member offices and left Republican Party Party member offices pristine. And interestingly enough, this crew, this crew of invaders, uh, was a multi-class uh, formulation. You had CEOs who were part of the invaders. You had people flying in on private planes. You had an Olympic swimmer. Of course, you have small business owners. You have military veterans. Uh, you had police officers, firefighters, and various lumpen elements. And in some ways, it represented the kind of uh, multi-class formation, uh, overwhelmingly of European descent, that helped to form this country uh, in the first instance, uh, which then brings me to some sectors of the U.S. left, which really have downplayed the profundity and significance of what took place on January 6th. As a matter of fact, if listeners dig on the Internet, they'll find an interview uh, that I was involved in where a so-called leading, quote, socialist, unquote, was rebuking me for even using the term white supremacy because supposedly that disrupts class unity. I think that some of the folks on the left, because the Democrats are on one side and the Republicans on the other, and they have this sort of reflexive hostility to the Democrats, they feel that if they support the narrative that this was an insurrection and sedition, They'll be on the side of the Democrats, and they don't want to be on the side of the Democrats. But then, of course, that may leave them on the side of the Republicans, uh, interestingly enough. And I should also say that uh, I I'm hoping that this January 6th episode represents a kind of overreach, because the right wing in this country is so strong that oftentimes they overreach. That happened when they refused to accept uh, Lincoln's bargain of continuing slavery and decided to overthrow him. 
and wound up losing it all, including billions of dollars in, in slave property. And now they may have overreached again, which hopefully will cause prosecutions and jailings and imprisonment and a fracturing of the Republican Party base. Uh, if so, uh, let us hope that this may be the last scene of the Cold War. What I mean is this settler colonial project was built on class collaboration. Then we were able to push back and disrupt it. But it seems that when we were able to push back and disrupt it and organize unions during the Cold War in particular, uh, they were disrupted by Reaganism, by Republican right. And then that vacuum, ideological vacuum, was fueled by right-wing populism of Trump that then leads to an invasion of the Capitol on January 6th. And let us hope that this is a turning point that will allow us to erode, if not hopefully destroy forever, uh, these terrible malignant uh, elements who have inflicted so much damage on this country and the world. Wow. Yes. Thank you very much for that, Dr. Gerald Horn. What we'll do now is we'll pause for our station break and when we return, we'll focus a bit on the damage that Donald Trump and his team, they're doing on their way out on the international front as well as the national front. And today being the birthday of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, we will also pause to honor him. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Of only vanity and no love for humanity shall fade away, fade away. He who checks for only wealth and not for his physical health shall fade away, fade away. All righty, and that is Junior Biles' Fade Away. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you've missed any part of this hour from 10 this morning for 90 days after that, just go to kpfk.org, scroll down to archives, click on Sojourner Truth. You'll be able to hear the show in its entirety, and you can subscribe for a free podcast. Uh, you can also check out our website at sotrueradio.org. And if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook. Our hand on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. Today, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Atlanta, Georgia, and internationally, a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Japan. It is our weekly roundtable. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. We're now going to turn our attention uh, to the damage that Donald Trump is doing on his way out. Um, quite a bit of it. Uh, Laura Carlson, let's start with you. Well, in foreign policy, we have a situation where he's withdrawn from major multilateral institutions, some of them absolutely key to confronting the, the dual crisis that, we are, that the globe is confronting at this moment, the health and the economic crisis. That's the World Health Organization, the Paris Agreements for Climate Change, the United States Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, the Human Rights Council. So Biden will have a huge, uh, a, a huge challenge in rebuilding the trust after the U.S. government did this and catching up and patching up within these multilateral organizations. The unilateral foreign policy, which was never particularly <laughs> cohesive, 
It was basically made up of a transactional, you know, approach, an arm-twisting approach to getting what he wants that often mixed, you know, personal gain with a political or any kind of diplomatic goals has left this legacy of, of, uh, of multilateral institutions in the shambles. There's also a greater threat on nuclear weapons in the Middle, we- Middle East as Trump leaves, of course, leaving the Iran agreement and in general um, provoking many countries in that region and in other regions has led to a buildup. Israel now acts as though it has carte blanche to violate international law. The Saudis are armed to the teeth, and many of those deals may be difficult to get out of, even with the change in government. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, of course, he's trying to lock in all the anti-immigration and anti-asylum efforts. Um, yeah. Many of these he will not be able to lock in because they are based on executive orders that are therefore rescindable. And they're also because the courts have been striking them down for being flagrantly illegal. However, uh, some of them will be more difficult, and the Biden administration has already said that it will take some time to get out of. Overall, the biggest damage, I think, in foreign policy has been a green light for authoritarianism, and he tends to get along best with strongmen, so they've been emboldened over this period, and authoritarian currents and forces within countries the ultra-right in particular, have also been emboldened. And as Dr. Gerald Horn pointed out, there's a growing alliance between those movements that threatens all democracies, not just the United States. Just yeah. quickly on environment, the only thing I'll say is that uh, much of the incursions into common public lands have been on indigenous lands. There's been a record loss of national park areas and mining and oil and gas permits. The Arizona, Arizona Apache tribes are now fighting a copper mine. There's helium drilling in Utah. And the Lakota Nation is again fighting a uranium mine. So we'll continue to see conflicts over these issues and uh, to see how far the Biden administration is willing or able to go to roll back some of that damage. Right. Thank you, Laura Carlson. And, and Jackie Goldberg, uh, by the way, the, the, on the issue of Cuba, uh, with Trump designating Cuba as a state sponsor of terrorism, that reversed the Obama-era decision to remove that label and something a lot of people in the region, CARICOM and other folks, the Caribbean um, heads of uh, states are, are quite upset about. But Jackie Goldberg, um, the, another thing that he's done is to give a green light for Israeli Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu to build 800 new settler homes in the occupied West Bank. This is something that Joe Biden had objected uh, to before, uh, of course, condemned by the uh, Palestinian Authority uh, in Yemen. He's labeled the Houthi resistance movement against the Saudi, uh, who's been uh, bombing them as foreign uh, foreign terrorist organizations. So uh, a lot of people very worried about what this means moving forward and what it might mean for the Biden administration to have to undo Jackie Goldberg. Well, <clears throat> I think that um, uh, Trump's effect on Israel uh, is yet unknown. Uh, certainly, uh, the fact that all of this happened and Netanyahu had to actually go on television and condemn the violence uh, in the capital of the United States tells you that uh, 
he's a little worried now about his long-term relationship uh, and the, the uh, set, agreeing to more uh, of these uh, housing uh, for the taking away more of Palestinian uh, little territory that it has uh, is really quite an extraordinary thing and will we'll be fought on both sides of the uh, Atlantic Ocean by Jewish people. I think probably the biggest one that that Pompeo is doing right now is screwing around with China and Taiwan. Uh, you know, for many, 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 many years, uh, the United States position was is that uh, we were not involved in going to have uh, uh, Taiwanese be able to make uh, 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 trade agreements with the United States and so forth. And and I think this whole business of undoing the one China policy. Uh, will put us in some very difficult uh, situations for a very long time, and I think it kind of traps uh, Biden in what they can do in that area. Um, I also think that Cuban uh, terrorism state thing can be reversed very quickly, so I think it's a terrible thing, but I don't think it's a difficult thing to reverse since it was done by executive order. Uh, I do think, though, however, the fact that Trump is going around having Pompeo set little traps for the Biden administration is something that I don't believe we've ever seen before in American history. Even when administrations disagreed with each other that were in transition, one of them did not go about in the last few days in office of trying to uh, undermine the ability of the other to have their own foreign policy. I've never seen that before, and I think it's something that uh, means that this particular administration is being particularly interested in doing as much damage to uh, America in every way it can while it has a few days left in office. Yes, and um, on the environment front, so upsetting the Tongass uh, National Forest, so important to indigenous people in Alaska. Uh, Trump now opened it up, and there's a, a lot of worry. I think about 500 miles, the, the Tongass National Forest, really important to the whole planet. So a lot of damage being done there. Dr. Gerald Horn, your thoughts on all this? Well, you probably know there's this Cuban joke that asks, why is there so much political instability in Latin America and Africa and not the United States? And the answer is there's no U.S. embassy in Washington, D.C. Now, that joke rings a bit sardonically nowadays because I think one of the lessons of January 6th is that military veterans in particular uh, who had learned to resolve political disputes in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere through the barrel of a gun decided to bring that lesson home to Washington, D.C., which then brings me to the rather unfortunate appointment slash promotion of Victoria Newland, who, as you know, was key to many so-called color revolutions in Eastern Europe that oftentimes involved de facto alliances with neo-Nazi forces has just been promoted by Mr. Biden as a leading figure in the U.S. State Department, which suggests that the Biden team have not learned the lesson of history. Which brings me to Secretary of State Michael Pompeo and this tidal wave of news in the last few days. What was missed was a rather spectacular incident where he had to cancel a visit to Western Europe because governments refused to meet with him in Western Europe. Also, officials in the U.S.-dominated North Atlantic Treaty Organization refused to meet with him because they saw him as representative of a representative of a coup-plotting regime, which, of course, he is. Uh, this bodes well.
debate now taking place at the United Nations at the Human Rights Council in Geneva, which in the best-case scenario could lead to sanctions against Washington because of police terror inflicted routinely against uh, black citizens. Uh, Congressman Andy Kim of New Jersey remarked that there are now more U.S. troops uh, headquartered in Washington, D.C., than in Kabul and Baghdad combined. And certainly that is part of this lesson of January 6th. That is to say there is a connection between these overseas adventures trying to resolve political disputes through military means and what erupted on January 6th. And certainly this January 6th episode will be quite harmful to the execution of U.S. foreign policy. For example, Mr. Biden had planned to hold the so-called Democracy Summit in the spring, inviting representatives from all around the world as part of an anti-China maneuver. But he apparently has canceled this exercise, and not a moment too soon, I might add. And in the irony of ironies, the president of Zimbabwe sent out a tweet where he asked wondrously, how was it that the United States could sanction and instruct other governments overseas, like his own, about democracy when you have invaders try to prevent the transfer of power from one, one regime to another? Well, yes, thank you, uh, Dr. Horner. What we're going to do now is actually wrap our show up um, it, just remembering uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, but not only remembering him, but uh, for if you could comment on uh, his legacy and the work that he's done, the challenge that he uh, gave to all of us in these times. First, let's go to, because I would love to hear his voice, we'll go to a clip um, of... Uh, a memorial after Dr. King was killed uh, where they introduced a clip of the last sermon that he gave. We gather here this morning in one of the darkest hours in the history of the black people of this nation. Mrs. King has requested that we have the tape of his last sermon played to us now. Any of you around, when I have to meet my day, I don't want a long speech. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk to you. Every now and then I wonder what I want them to say. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or four hundred other awards. That's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving up. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I want you to say that day that I tried to be right on the wall. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try in my life to clothe those who were naked. I want you to say on that day that I did try in my life to clothe those who were naked. 
like the physical who were in prison. I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major. Say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. And that's all I want to say. If I can help somebody as I pass along, if I can cheer somebody with a word of song, if I can show somebody he's traveling wrong, then my living will not be in vain. If I can do my duty as a Christian, or if I can bring salvation to a world once wrought, if I can spread the message as the master taught, then my living will not be in vain. Wow, <laughs> that's quite something. Um, he certainly knew uh, what he was going to be facing. And uh, we'll do a bit of a lightning round here, looking at the time. We'll start with you, Laura Carlson. Uh, just, you know, take about a minute or so, I'm afraid, um, on your thoughts on the relevance of Martin Luther King and his uh, message and deeds today. Well, first of all, we really have to go back and look at that radical legacy because there has been at times a dominant narrative that sees him as the martyr and, in a sense, the moderate within the civil rights movement, focusing more on tactical debate than on the real content of his thinking. And he was profoundly anti-war, as we've seen, and profoundly anti-capitalist as well, with serious questioning. It's very important to go back and look at those lessons there as we face the need for more radical restructuring within the United States today. And the second point would be the concept of all of this as a moral struggle. In his speech, Beyond Vietnam, you know, it's hard to talk to, about him without quoting briefly because he said everything so much better than anyone ever could. If we make the right choice, we'll be able to transform the discords, the jangling discords of our world into a beautiful symphony. If we will but make the right choice, we'll be able to speed up the day all over America and all over the world when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And we don't see that right now, but that's exactly the point. He never lost the vision. We've been on the defensive now for so long that we have to go back and follow his example and rebuild that vision. Thank you. And Jackie, Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, your thoughts. Well, I, I have many thoughts, but I think the most important of which is, is that it is time for us to go back and be sure that we are teaching young political activists uh, the necessity for nonviolence, but also the necessity for the kinds of struggles that Martin Luther King Jr. led, which were mass-based, which were justice-based, which were reaching across racial and class lines, and it, it, that is a necessary part of what we need to do to take the Black Lives Matter message and now make it a reality. There are more people thinking for the first time about racism being in, in, a part and parcel of the systemic of our country, 
And now it is time for us to use the fact that there has been some type of awakening on a part of at least some people in this country, European-Americans. I think it is time for us to take his notion that you don't mourn, you organize. That wasn't his, of course, but he certainly believed in it. And I think it is an important part of his message is, is that you don't wish for things to get better. You organize and make things get better, but you do it in a way that is showing the morality and the justice of your position. It is not done through uh, violence. Yes, and Dr. Gerald Horn, there's been a lot of pushback over the last few years of people working to focus on the radical king rather than the the sanitized king that uh, many like to put forward. But uh, your thoughts on this, the birthday of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King? Well, certainly that radical king needs to be put in the forefront because it happens to be accurate. It happens to be true. Not only the anti-war king, but also the fact that he surrounded himself with people like the late Jack O'Dell, who had a left-wing radical trade union background and also happened to be a former chairman of the board of Pacifica Radio. Also, Jack was the founder of Freedom Ways magazine, which had a similar orientation like Jack himself. And interestingly enough, it was in February 1968, only weeks before Dr. King was assassinated, that he spoke at Carnegie Hall in New York at a benefit for Freedom Ways magazine where he saluted the late Dr. W.E.V. Du Bois, who had just passed away five years ago, and hailed the fact that W.E.V. Du Bois had joined the Communist Party before he passed away. I think also that the uh, King anniversary should cause many of our Christian friends to engage in a bit of self-criticism, because Dr. King represented the progressive aspect of Christianity, but we all know that's not the whole story. Uh, Somebody needs to interrogate why it is that the electoral base of the Republican Party are these so-called white Christian evangelicals, and when they do, they may want to ask themselves the question, how was it that Christians were in on the ground floor with regard to the African slave trade and with regard to the construction of white supremacy? Those are the sorts of questions we should be posing on the King holiday. Thank you, uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, and in our entire uh, panel, roundtable panel, we are out of time now. Another fascinating roundtable. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott, our audio engineer, Kiana Williams, our assistant producer, Romero Funes. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230. Go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Please, Y'all, stay safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Thank you for listening.